0: Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges, people who inspire and motivate, and people who can educate us on an assortment of topics. Our guest today is Danny Van. He is a musician, author, alumni of the Elvis Presley Impersonator Hall of Fame, and former <laughs> foster youth and foster care survivor. Born in 1953, the oldest of six kids, Danny has faced many challenges in his life. He is a foster care survivor and a prime example of how to overcome life's obstacles. He has been inspiring and motivating people for decades through his professional music, corporate leadership, and church fellowship roles. He emancipated out of foster care at age 17 and pushed forward to become independent and successful in spite of many difficult events in his life. Danny began his 45 year entertaining career at age 16, performing around the United States, including Las Vegas and internationally throughout Canada and Nova Scotia. He was promoted to supervisor and speakers bureau in his twenties and became a senior project manager for several multi-state multi-million dollar computer projects Mm -hmm. in corporate America. After open heart surgery and a heart attack 15 years later, He studied and became an ordained minister, foster care advocate, and youth mentor. He is a songwriter, recording artist, and author of My Journey in the Shadow of the King, a story of hope and resilience. Danny brings a multitude of life experience and life hacks to help others improve their life as they navigate their own journey. He encourages people not to panic about challenges along the way and sees all situations as opportunities for learning. His Heart's Desire is to Help Others Along Their Own Journey. Welcome, Danny, to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Ron. Glad to be here. Our pleasure.
0: I hope that uh, this interview will shed some light on a subject that a lot of people do not think about and open our eyes and hearts to the uh, foster care issue. I'd like to start at the beginning. Can you tell us what life was like for you and your siblings uh, before the breakup of the household?
1: Yeah, you know, we kind of had the, the, the mom and pop life. Uh, mom was a stay-at-home mom. This was in the early 60s, you know, of course. And so uh, uh, dad uh, worked at uh, General Motors up in Bay City, Michigan. And we had a, what I guess I would call a pretty normal life. We went to grandma's house every Sunday and had dinner and met with the relatives and you know, things are going along pretty good. Um, there wound up being six of us. Uh, I'm the oldest of uh, of six, and uh, you know, I remember my first day at school. Mom walked me to school, and you know, we had uh, what looked like was going to be a, a normal life in you know suburban America. <laughs> you know, right, right. Well, Danny, <laughs>
0: but, what, what what caused yeah. you what caused you and your siblings to be Uh, farmed out to relatives and then to foster care and how old were you and what was the foster uh home environment like at that time
1: okay yeah that's 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 quite a bit um when 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 my parents got divorced uh it was pretty violent leading up to it there was a lot of uh i mean my mother was italian and uh I remember the arguments over the dinner tables and we literally had tossed salads in our house. Uh, mom would throw anything she could at Dad, And there was, there was, there was violence. There was, uh, broken doors, broken everything. When, uh, when she threatened to call the police, he'd rip the phone off the wall. Um, when, 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 when it, when it got too violent, she would shoo us kids upstairs. There was, a. Uh, Uh, a a stairway right off of our dining room. And so the six kids would go up the stairs and they had a door on it uh, with one of those sliding bolts and she'd lock the door uh, to keep us out of harm's way. And then we had to sit there and listen to the, to the pounding flesh and to the thumping. And uh, pretty soon after a while uh, uh, the front door would open, you'd hear it fly open and all of a sudden the house would go quiet. Um, and so here we are, six kids locked upstairs, you know, in a wood frame house, yeah. uh, sometimes for seem like hours, you know, uh, so it was just crazy. So anyway, dad finally left, they got divorced. Uh, mom tried to raise us on her own, uh, as a waitress and a short order cook in the sixties, six kids. Uh, it didn't work, um she uh she had issues they both had issues you know obviously um and some of the things that she did you know she was 15 when she got pregnant uh 16 when i was born by the time she was 22 she had six kids and by the That's time That's a she, lot. That's a lot. Yeah, by the time she was 30 she was divorced you know yeah. and and had never really had a chance to be an adult or, or really grow up herself. Right. So it was a struggle and I get it now. I didn't back then, but so she tried, she farmed us out to relatives for a while. That was what they call kinship care today is if, if, you know, if the family is struggling, you give them the relatives. Um, that didn't work because she never really got on her feet. So we all came back she remarried that failed after a year, year and a half. Uh, and then at this point, I'm about 11 years old, 12 years old. And, um, it just, everything fell apart when she got divorced the second time, she, she got depressed and she just, I think she just basically gave up Uh, the house. The house went to shambles. Uh, it was already a struggle. And it literally got condemned. Uh, I remember sitting watching TV and watching rats go by the size of small cats, you know, uh, in our house. And so uh, they finally took us away and and she dropped us off at uh, an orphanage, St. Vincent's Home. Uh, Today they call them group homes. And uh, uh, from there, uh, life really took a turn for the better. Uh, because, uh, we had been raised Catholic and, uh, grandma was Catholic, my mom's mom. So, uh, it was actually kind of refreshing to walk through the door. There was like 10, 12 steps going up to the top. It was a typical old orphan, any institution, you know what I mean? Great, big, huge, yeah, overwhelming building. But when they opened the door, here's nuns in their habits, you know, Uh, ready with smiling faces to welcome us. And we all got new clothes, uh, you know, and three squares and all kinds of people doting on us. It was really, it was, it was a relief to some extent, even though it was still, we were through a lot of trauma at that point. Um, And uh, the, the hardest part of that was they split us up, boys and girls. And so from that point, you know, we at least knew we were all together, but we still had that some separation now. Um, from there, uh, it was more or less of a vacation for us from all of the chaos that we had been living in. Yeah. Um, uh, it was it was a, a decent place. Uh, they they really kept the kids busy. Um, they they there was a lot of people around, so they watched over us a lot. Uh, you felt safe there. I did, you know, I uh, think my siblings did. And then about a year or so into that, I'm like now I'm like 13 years old and uh, they started sending us out two by two in foster homes um, because it didn't look like anyone was coming back for us. There were a lot of missed visitations. Uh, even in the foster homes, uh, a lot of missed visitations. In fact, we had heard my mom even moved out of town and had a new boyfriend way up north in Michigan. So it was just crazy, just absolutely crazy. The foster home itself was very nice. the The family I I was staying with uh, had three of their own children, uh-huh. uh, and they took me in and. Uh, My foster mom was just a saint, you know, for all the issues and the problems and some of the things that we, you know, uh, confronted each other with. Uh, She was very patient. She was very uh, kind. Um, And it seemed like no matter what time of day or night uh, I got up or went to talk with her, she was always awake. She was ironing clothes at two o'clock in the morning. You know, she sounds like
0: a saint. Yeah,
1: she was. She was there to talk and she understood that that, you know, kids coming into her home had already been through a lot yeah. and she wasn't going to give them more to go through. She was going to be there for them, And she listened. She listened a lot. She, the only time I ever saw her get angry is is when my mom didn't show up for visitation weekend and my little brother who was there with me uh, at that foster home, there was two of us there. He started crying and he got upset. And that's the only time I saw her get upset. She was upset at my mom for not, uh, not
0: being there. Yeah, She it. wasn't upset at him. At no, yeah. no, no. Can you, de- can you describe to us, uh, through the eyes of a child, uh, what foster care feels like and, uh, what did you dream and hope for and tell us about you and your siblings, uh, Anger at that at the situation. Did you did you trust God to get you through? And what was your thought process on getting through that difficult time in your life?
1: You know, as a kid, when your parents aren't there for you, you're already wondering what's going to happen with the rest of your life, you know, because your whole world gets broken apart, right? Right. And then when mom packed us up and took us to the orphanage um and then drove away uh it was just it was like will i ever see her again you know what's going to happen to us now uh what did we do wrong you know yeah, you get yeah. you go through those thoughts of what what could i have done to help this situation uh was it caused by the fact that there were six of us? Yeah, Just all these thoughts go through your head. And sure. and the only thing you can reason is, what did I do? And what could I do to make it better? What could I do to fix it or, or something? Uh, and then as you walk into new surroundings, um, it's it, everybody handles that differently. I, I was the oldest and we had already been through The kinship care cycle so we had already stayed with relatives we'd already stayed at some other people's homes like we had babysitters that you know every once in a while if a relative couldn't watch us or what we'd go to the babysitter's house and spend the weekend or a week or whatever so so some of that we had already become a little used to which is sad to say you know yeah but still, when you go off into different parts of the city, I was devastated that summer when uh, I couldn't see my brothers and sisters. I had been used to being the you know, the, the father figure of the house yeah, and taking like the care caretaker, of everybody yeah. as the oldest. So what I did, Ron, was uh, I got a job. Here I am, like 14, 15 years old at this point. I got a job as an ice cream uh, cart salesman. And this was back when they had the push carts with the little bells that you would ring on the You handle. were probably
0: a pretty popular guy then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I got a job selling ice cream for the summer and I saved all my money and I bought used bikes for my siblings so that we could ride the bikes around the city because it was Bay City. It was a small, relatively small town. Yeah. We could ride bikes and see each other. Uh, so that's how I handled it. Wow. Uh, my siblings, not so much. They, they did a lot of crying. They, they did a lot of lamenting, uh, and, and, you know, no cell phones backed in, no internet, no email, you know, uh, yeah. you really didn't even get to use the phone that much to call each other. So you um, were,
0: you were isolated.
1: You're isolated. You know, yeah. you're isolated. Yeah. And, and today, if there's violence, they even send you to a different town, you know, at least we were pretty much in our hometown turf, you know? Yeah. Um, so we went through that. I, I talked with my siblings when I could. I rode my bike to see them if they, if they got, you know, frustrated or upset. Um, from there, we went on, and, and uh, there was reunification in, in our future. Uh, uh, it, it, it turned up that, that two of my sisters were up for adoption. And when I heard about that, I just panicked because then I thought, oh no, our families get torn apart permanently, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so I went to the caseworker and I said, "What? What can we do? What can I do?" She goes, "There's nothing. The only person that can help you is your parents. They have to step up, you know." So I appealed to them to reach out. It turns out, I don't remember how, what the time frame was, but my dad showed up um, on visitation weekend. And he promised that he was repairing the house and that he was going to get us all back. And he did. Wow. Uh, unfortunately it wasn't a, a live happily ever after ending though, because uh, he, he had us for a while. He got my brother and me first uh, cause he couldn't get all six at once. He had he had to put bedrooms in the house and all that. So Uh, He got a couple of us, and then he got a couple more, and then he finally got all six of us. And then somebody somewhere along the line reported that, you know, I'm only 15 years old and uh, 14 and a half, 15 years old, watching six kids while dad was still at work. So he had to go get a nanny. So he winds up bringing us this nanny, who's this lady that he met at the local Wonder Bar and became... Good friends with, right? Right. Well, they got married. She's an alcoholic, and it wasn't six months. And it was like we were right back where we were before it all started. The fights, the arguments. Uh, over the years, he broke her jaw three times, but she oh. wouldn't leave him. She wouldn't leave him. Uh, so, I went back and forth between the parents, and finally, that's when I emancipated out. The caseworkers couldn't really help the situation, um, and so I, at 17 years old, uh, my my dad uh, went on a camping excursion for the weekend with the rest of the family, and by this time, I'm I'm 16 and a half, almost 17. And um, I met some people that were in a talent contest uh, for a radio station. And they invited me to come up to Cadillac 100 miles away for the weekend. And so I did. Um, and I told them my story on the way up there. And they said, you know what? You know, we're, we're working on the music program with our daughter. They had a teenage daughter. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she was a singer. Uh, she did Tammy Wynette and I did Elvis. And, uh, and so dad, the dad saw dollar signs. I didn't realize that at the time, but yeah, you guys could sing duets, you know? And, sure. uh, so I, I, they drove me back from Cadillac to Bay city. I packed everything I owned in three paper grocery bags, three bags yeah. full. Yeah. And I left a note on the phone, uh, dad, you've done enough. I'll take it from here. How did and, that go over? <laughs> uh, I left the phone number. Yeah. And uh, when when he got back home, I got the phone call. Yeah. And he just said, you know, get your so you know get your dupa home. Yeah. And uh, and I said, no, I'm 17. I am with, tax paying adults, and they're willing to take me, you know, take me in. So, I'm now an emancipated minor. And, uh, I yeah. guess that those, those magic words did the, tr- did the trick because, yeah. uh, that was it. He, he said, he, sayonara. Uh, that was it. I was yeah. on my own. So, so Danny,
0: all children, uh, especially older children in foster care, um, deserve a loving family uh, with no expiration date yet in the United States, more than 23,000 youth exit foster care and are left to fend for themselves each year. Now youth who age out of foster care are more likely to engage in risky behaviors and are more likely to experience hardships such as homelessness, joblessness, early parenthood and substance abuse. You impact current Let me take a moment out of the podcast to tell you about an exceptional book Thriving After Sexual Abuse Break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love. Dealing with Survivors of Sexual Abuse, written by Denise Bossart, who is a novelist, award winning photographer, an artist, certified meditation facilitator, contemplative arts teacher, PhD in developmental neuroscience, and a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Denise spent her adulthood healing herself from the traumatic impact the abuse had on her life. She is not a mental health professional. She is a thriver who has traveled a healing journey and is able to share a personal guided experience for readers to find and engage in their own journey to healing, to become thrivers. The book is an eloquent and empathetic self-development book laying out a blueprint for survivors to heal themselves. Denise writes with fierce candor as she shares her own traumatic experience with childhood sexual abuse. The book provides tips and suggestions. For readers to seek help, self-reflect, and pursue healing through a range of activities and practices, and offers tangible strategies for readers to reclaim their lives and move forward to a life of thriving. In a book that is at once deeply honest and informative, Denise examines the most difficult of subjects with grace, sensitivity, and profound empathy for survivors, which makes this book an essential guide for the process of healing. Thriving After Sexual Abuse, break, break Your Bondage to the Past and Live a Life You Love is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. The book will be listed in the podcast notes and in the ad section of my website, it's a arapwithrap.com, and also on my Facebook page, it's a rap with rap. Foster youth today uh, through your messaging and your book. What drove you to write the book?
1: Yeah. So, throughout my life, after I got out of all this and wound up on my own, I did graduate high school, and uh, you know, I skipped over a part. That it wasn't all bad with the stepmom because she listened to my passion about wanting to be a singer, and she talked my dad into buying me my first guitar. And so, nice. when I went when I went to that talent show. I was there with my guitar that my stepmom bought me, and so music was my passion, and God was my deliverer, as it were, because I did have prayer, and I did have church, you know, while I was at the orphanage. I became an altar boy for the Catholic Mass, and I literally... Ron, I literally went to church every day of the week and twice on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) So, so God was there and he helped me through and my music helped me through. So later in life, as I'm out doing concerts and I'm going to, I'm going to make it, I made up my mind. I'm going to make it, whatever it takes. Right. So I did everything and anything. And uh, uh, as I got out there and I began to, to make, uh, uh, some success. Uh, I began doing a lot of benefit concerts. I did concerts for, you know, for, for, uh, muscular dystrophy. I did concert for SIDS. I did concerts for families. If they like we, there was a family that they, their house caught on fire. And, and so we did a benefit concert to raise money. Every time one of those things came along, people say, can you help? Yes, I'll do a show. I'll do a concert, keep the money, you know? And so I did, Dozens and dozens and dozens of those. Well, finally, I'm in my uh, uh, late 30s, early 40s, and I got the itch to go back to the orphanage and do a concert for them. Yeah. So I went back to St. Vincent's home and they said, no, thank you. Uh, We have a different program now. We only deal with really problematic uh, teenage boys, and we know they don't want an Elvis concert. You know, so uh, I was crushed because, you know, I I hear God, I'm trying to give something back and they don't want it. What am I going to do? Right. So I went and found, excuse me, another boy's home that I remember driving past uh, over the years. And it wasn't too far away. And I gave the offer to them and they they jumped on it. So three years, three years in a row, I did concerts there for this boy's home. And we raised community awareness. Uh, we we went in and did Christmas concerts, and literally my idea was I told the counselors get the boys uh to write down a wish list of, of two or three things that if they could have anything, what would they want for Christmas? Right. Right. And then I took my guitar, the one that my foster mom got me, and I went to the home and I did little mini concerts with the boys sang my songs. We cut up, had a lot of fun, yeah. played, you know, just really got to know each other. And about the second or third year that I did this, uh, uh, one of the boys went to the director of the home and said, who is this guy and why does he care about us? Yeah. Right. Cause I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old at this point and I'm a right. business executive in corporate America. I was in computers and I'm showing up with my guitar and and I, I told the director, he called me and asked me that question. I, I told him, I said, you go back and tell that young man. When I was his age, I was in a home and somebody came and helped me. And now it's my turn to help you. And when you get to be my age, it'll be your turn. Nice story. So after that, the following year, we had a huge turnout. I mean, we literally... Had donations. I, I worked it. I worked all my contacts. and so we had corporations making donations. The home had all kinds of donations. Every boy wound up with everything on their list, oh, uh, which was just awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, a local restaurant uh, agreed to host a dinner where we were going to have the boys open their gifts, you know, at you know, at, at, at the dinner. And I did a concert, a free concert there. Um, and it was just awesome. I mean, the 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 wife of the restaurant, uh the owner, uh got up and danced with all the teenage boys uh wow. during during Love Be Tender, you know, or can't I fall in love with yeah. you? So it was just awesome. And so the following year, the director asked me uh to attend their statewide volunteer recognition dinner in Frankenmooth, Michigan. And uh he says, I want you to tell your story. And I said, my story. I said, this is about the kids. I, I don't matter. And he goes, yes, you do. He said, you have no idea how encouraging it is. Number one to the boys to see that somebody like them could become somebody like you. Yeah. Number two to the counselors because they could see that somebody was able to, to, to break away from the system. Right. And number three, he said the whole organization looks at folks and, and when they see that somebody can come through this and that what they're doing is good and it is well-received and it can help somebody grow, right? So he told me my story needed to be heard. Fast forward about 12 years and I had a heart attack. I'm sitting on my couch. I'm lamenting. What am I going to do now? Um, and it, it just, it just kept coming up over and over again your story needs to be heard you need to get out there and tell your story i I had been doing concerts i'd been shaking hands when we were in the orphanage a live band came performed for us and they came off the stage and shook my hand from there i went out and at all my concerts my especially the parks and recs outdoor concerts that i did with kids i shook every kid's hand that would come forward I went from one handshake in St. Vincent's home in 1965, right? right. I literally, over the years, with all the thousand plus concerts that I did, I literally shook over 10,000 hands. Wow. By doing that. Wow. And now, that,
0: that one handshake
1: uh, meant a lot. It was just awesome. It, it so set, folks, set it off. Even a little thing that you do, you have yeah. no idea the impact it could have right. on another person. And right. how many other people could be yeah, touched absolutely. by it, right? Absolutely. Very inspiring. So when Gordy told me your story needs to be heard, I, I sat down, I talked to my wife about it, and I said, I can't work anymore, I can't perform anymore, I can't travel anymore. I said, I I I can get through the internet and I can write a book and I can help people know that they can, if I can do it, they can do it, right? Right, and So that's how the book was born, and it kind of had that dual meaning, my journey in the shadow of the king, yeah. uh, because I was, you know, my, my journey was to be like Elvis, Right, but, but as I went through my life, the more I was around people, and the more benefits I did, and the more things I did for, like, underprivileged kids, uh, I began to realize it was more important to be like the king of kings, yeah. And do things for children and help right. the kids and help the families. And so that's that's really where the book came from. And since then, that was two years ago, uh, I'm actually working on and getting ready to release a second book. Right.
0: I was going to I'm going to ask you about mm-hmm. that a little later on.
1: All right. OK. Uh,
0: got another question for you. Instead of being uh, safely reunified with their families or moved quickly into adoptive homes, uh, many of the fosters were language for years in foster homes or institutions. So I did a little research and found out that on any given day, there are nearly 424,000 children in foster care in the United States. And in 2019, over 672,000 children spent time in U.S. foster care. And that comes from childrenrights.org. So my question to you is, uh, why are more children being placed in foster care, and what can be done uh, to
1: decrease it? In your opinion, that's 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 an awesome question and an awesome observation. Um, there, there's a couple things that are happening out there. Um, you know, first of all, because of the awareness of abuse, child abuse, uh, drug abuse. Um, the decrease in marriage, married couples, single family, the increase in single family homes, um, all of those factors come into play with the why the increase in foster care. Um, there's been extreme sensitivity to how kids are being raised, and uh, if there's abuse or neglect or unsafe circumstances. And of course, with the internet and with all the new communication channels we have, uh, there's a lot more exposure now than there was 20, 30 years ago. So the awareness is coming up that there's a lot of kids that just aren't being treated right. Right. So you got this pendulum that swings and says, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna pull them out of these terrible circumstances and give them a better life. Right. 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 Well, what they've learned over the last 20 years and, and, and really the last 15 years, there've been a lot of studies about the trauma that is, uh, uh, put on these kids when they're taken from their bio families. Um, so just in the last two or three years, and I've been part of a couple of political, uh, uh, camp, not campaigns, but, uh, um, uh, webinars, okay, with some of the Congress, um, that Dr. Ben Carson, I was just on with him uh, last week, uh, and then my Michigan congressman, there's a move afoot to come around the families to, to help the families that are struggling, okay? Now, if there's blatant abuse, uh, you know, mental, physical, sexual abuse, then yes, no question, you have to remove the child, but right. there's there's a there's a percentage of these kids going into foster care where the the whole problem that the family has is poverty. So you got a single family parent here yeah. and they're struggling. My mother's was poverty. Sure. OK, because uh, she wasn't abusive to us. <clears throat> maybe maybe there was some neglect, but I'm not going to go there right now. But. Anyway, so the movement now is to come around the families, and they, they cited an example in one of these where uh, uh, um, Child Protective Services, CPS, uh, was called because the kids were coming, they were unclean, unkept, yada, yada, yada. They went to the house, uh, the furniture's trash. they don't have enough beds for the kids, sleeping on the floor, on, you know, make-do air mattresses. So they warn the parents and warn them again and they come back. And so finally you you, you don't have good, good uh, hygiene and you don't have good beds for the kids. We're yanking the kids. Right? right. And, and the cost of putting them in foster care and going through all the things that have to be is something like seven, it was either seven or 17 times, right. What it is to come around the family and, 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 and the whole situation here is if you see a family struggling try and help them yeah. don't just pull them apart right so you know the 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 suggestion was buy the family some beds you know find out what right. you can do to help them
0: take care first. of some of the physical needs
1: yeah, yeah yeah and so there's a move afoot now to come alongside there's one called a uh, foster family initiative where they're, they're coming and supporting the bio family to try and prevent that, just, just like we just said. And uh, uh, there's many, many more things that are going on, uh, two or three different states, Arizona, Wisconsin, California, they're putting these families uh, family first initiatives in. That says That's before good. we take kids away from the family, we're gonna try and help fix the family issues. Well, since since you're,
0: you know, uh, very knowledgeable on this subject, I have another question for you. Uh, We would hope that most foster home uh, situations are providing a safe, loving environment, but we do know that abuse uh, does occur, and it is a reality no one likes to talk about. Now, due to the lack of data and the fact that many cases go unreported, it is impossible to know how many children suffer abuse in the system. The few studies that do exist, typically examine the problem on a state-by-state basis. These studies seem to indicate around 20 to 25 percent of children in state foster care systems suffer abuse. In the California foster care system, at least 38 percent of the children experience five or more placements. So what are your thoughts on the things that need to be done to turn this around? Yeah.
1: You know, the, the first thing that we have to do is, is, is there needs to be a little more involvement as, you know, as I was saying about the family initiative, the same thing is true with the whole program is, you know, we've, we've had this throw money at it mentality for a long time. It's just, you know, hire more people, do this, do that. And, and, you're not really getting to the heart of the problems. Uh, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're trying to bring people in that maybe aren't prepared. There's more training that's required now. Uh, we need to have more support networks. There are, there are actually foster family uh, uh, Facebook groups out there now with, with support because, you know, being a foster parent's not easy because, you're bringing kids that have been traumatized in and you're not a psychologist, you know? And so it's easy to see how over time, you know, trauma and and pain and anger and acting out and all these things, you have to be like like my foster mom was a saint. You have to, you know, you have to have that. So what happens when you're a plain old person and you found out you got yourself in over your head? Yeah. And and you don't have the heart to send the kid packing, you know, uh, or you have a spouse that that was only half in to begin with. Right. So this is where coming alongside of people, being more involved, having more uh, um, programs, more support networks, pulling more churches in. There's there's a new uh, church, I say new, uh, there's an organization out there called Care Portal. And Care Portal is trying to create uh, church networks for fosters, okay, to support the foster family, to draw new foster families, uh, to go back and help the bio families. They're literally trying to do that, James 127, you know, perfect spirituality is visit the widows and the orphans in their time of distress, right? right? So that's awesome. So yeah. all of the above are churning, um, uh, there's pockets, um, but it's, it just takes this kind of pro- program like you have Ron to get the word out there yeah. that, Hey folks, if, if you're wondering why some kid at school is either a, a bully or b withdrawn too shy or C, uh, failing, you know, for no good reason, because you know, they're intelligent. Those are three indicators. There's something wrong in River City. Look into it. Try and ask what you can do. Just listen, you know, Uh, and, and you can search things out. There's foster everything in every state. If you go to the go to the Internet and search foster care, foster closet, you know, foster support what can I do to help, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, tell us about your passion for music and Elvis uh, that you have always had and what advice do you have for people to follow their passions?
1: Yes, that's great. Thank you for asking that. I, I firmly believe that everybody has a purpose. There's, there's a reason why you're here and And especially if you've lost your way, if you've lost your family, if you've lost something dear to you, we all tend to migrate to something that comforts us. There's something that you like to do, you know, whether it's fishing, whether it's hunting, if it's music, if it's, you know, crocheting, whatever, you know, it it, it could be getting on TikTok and making a dance video, right? Right. what, what I discovered is, is, and, and they just, you know, I mean, go back, go, go back to the Holocaust and some of these survivor stories, how did they do it? They had a purpose. They had a reason to get up every day. Right. Right. You need to find uh, the, the, the thing I encourage people to do is find a reason, find your, your love. Now I wrote an article and I published it, uh, called follow your passion into your career. Okay? Okay. Uh, it, it's it's out on the Internet, um, <clears throat> and it goes through a whole series of ways to help discover. If you don't know what your passion is, you don't really have something, uh, there's an assessment test you can take, online, free. It takes five minutes to find out what you're gifted in, you know, just what kind yeah. of natural abilities do you have. Yeah, And that could give you a push in that direction. For me, it was music and I always loved to sing. I always wanted to be like Elvis. And I, I said someday I'm going to do it. And I did a lot of hard work, but it was, to me, it wasn't work. It was love. I loved to do it. I would sing at the drop of a hat, sing for anybody, anytime, anywhere. I just love to sing. Right. Yeah. And there's people who love to do all kinds of things. Sure. And to me, if you get to do that in your life, uh, You're, you're very fortunate. That's awesome. Now, I I discovered early in my life, thank goodness, that I, I couldn't make a full living at being an impersonator. Right? Right. So I took a job in corporate America. And the assessment test, the aptitude test, they used to call it, that I took back in middle school, told me that they told me that I had a very logical mind, right? And that I would do good in a logical type of a job where I would apply myself like accounting or something like that, Uh, you know, being a lawyer or whatever. So in my mid-20s, as you mentioned, (laughs) excuse me, I got into corporate America and computers in, in 1974, 75 were just starting to take off. And 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 so I got into the computer field, which I was a shoe in for because of my logical uh, fit that I had. <clears throat> and had I never taken that assessment test, I don't think I would have had the confidence to even try out for that job. But I tried out. I was a a, a good fit, and I found a lot of success in it. So I was able to actually have two careers. Over my yeah. lifetime, right? The corporate America paid the main bills paid all the medical expenses. And I had my entertainment career on the side. Uh, I did as many as 60 concerts a year, but your oh, entertainment
0: career must have been the fun one, right?
1: It, it was the one that, you know how they say you've got to go <clears throat> uh, exercise to de-stress or go, yeah. you know, plant flowers right. or whatever. To me, it was get on stage, you know. And it not, was not only fun, but I, I was able to excel in that. And, and it just, uh, I was able to take my family places that I never would have done otherwise. Right. Because I would have been too busy in corporate America. But we went places and somebody else paid the bill to get us there. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah.
0: Danny, would you please give us uh, your favorite life lesson quote? And tell us why it resonates with you and how it was relevant in your life.
1: I, I think the, the the main quote <clears throat> that, that I use the most is that um, life is a journey. <clears throat> and this is just the next step on your journey. So don't panic. That things that go wrong are actually opportunities for growth. It's a long, okay. it's a long statement, but it's all interconnected, yeah. right? So, being on this journey, um, you don't know what's going to happen next. It's it's a lot of adventures strung out across many years, and don't give up. You know, just to me, it was. Uh, as as I begin to see things, uh, you know, the first thing that you begin looking at is, okay, if mom and dad aren't together anymore and our house got condemned and I got put in an orphanage and then I'm in a foster home, where is my home? What yeah. What is home? You know? And so you begin looking at, I guess, home is where my heart feels safe. <laughs> right. You know, that's my right. main home. Yeah. But beyond that, my home is in my journey. It's where, it's where I, you know. <clears throat> well, I, want to
0: so, some, I want to touch on I want to touch yeah. on something that I read about. About you, you talked about you talk about how people can leverage the power of gratitude to improve improve our uh, overall mental wellness. Yes. Uh, how do you define the concept of gratitude, and why do you think so many people do not feel gratitude?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a very good question. <clears throat> Gratitude to me is 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 having an appreciation for the things that you have and the things that come into your life. It's being able to uh, be thankful for what you do have instead of resentful that someone else has more or different or better or got it at a different time than you did. So having an attitude of gratitude is I, I've always been a, a silver lining person looking for the good in things. And it has helped me tremendously because instead of the glass half empty, uh, to me, it's always half full because right. I know that if, if I apply myself, we can do, we can make something out of this, you know, we can make it better. Right. And so, uh what was the second half of your question? First, you asked me to define it. <laughs> uh, why do you think so many people do
0: not feel gratitude? And while I'm at it, uh, tell us how increased gratitude on our part uh, can help and enhance our, our lives and the, the exact ways each of us can leverage the power of gratitude.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. So why, why do I think a lot of people don't have gratitude today? Yeah. There's multiple reasons because we have different generations that express uh, different reactions to things in their lives, okay? Uh, The first one is is that I think people over the years have gotten to the point where uh, we grew up and our parents gave us everything. They promised us everything. They told us we're perfect all the time and <clears throat> so now we get out in the world and the world ain't doing that, right? The world's kind of mean and tough. And so how can I be grateful when I'm not being handed everything like I was when I was home? So there's this feeling of entitlement. There's this feeling of, gee, it's not as good here as I thought it was going to be. Um, and instead of digging in and trying to make it better, uh, people just get cynical and angry and um, it's crazy you know, uh, the way the way the world has gotten so mean and, and people bully each other. You've got animi- uh, anonymity. You've got people who, <coughs> excuse me, they hide behind uh, their computer screen. They hide behind a username. Um, and so they kind of feel like, you know what? I can say what I want. I can be what I want. Who cares? Nobody can do anything to me anyway. Uh, and it's just very sad. I also believe that uh, we've lost a lot of moral ground over the last couple of decades. Um, I'm in my late sixties. And so I've been here, you know, back in the, the, the uh, happy days as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Some of those, some of those days when life was a lot more simple and it just seems like people uh, they just, they, they just don't want to be, grateful they just want more there's greed you know and you've got they're constantly being bombarded of you need this you need to look like this you need to have this you should be here you should this you should the marketing is just totally uh, taken over everything yeah. and everywhere you look you need to be better you can't be happy with what you have because i got something new you know yeah. yeah and so it
0: just feeds into that well hopefully people are hearing this and Maybe they're reevaluating it in their minds. Uh, You are launching a second book soon. What is the name of it? And how can your book help former fosters?
1: The name of my new book is called From Chaos to Forgiveness, A Journey to Freeing Yourself from Past Pain and Trauma." From Chaos to Forgiveness, a journey to freeing yourself from past pain and trauma and what i've done <clears throat> with this book is documented a journey my you know a life's journey through through all the chaos through the foster care through post foster care you know there's there's this now this view that that kids that have come through the system have all the symptoms and signs of PTSD, just like combat veterans do. Okay. Yeah. So with that being said, as I begin to understand what's been going on uh, in foster care over the last couple of years, uh, that I've been really digging in and learning more about it, I realized that there's this whole process that has to be taken to get over all the trauma, to get over all those things that have happened to you. And many of us carry them well into adulthood. And some people are still walking around with a lot of anger and pain and, uh, you know, resentment and hate. Uh, and so I began looking at that and saying, what could I do as an example, like I was in the first book, is like to help encourage people. I went out and said, you know, there's a grieving process and they've, they've defined the steps in grieving. Right. Right. I wonder if there's a forgiveness process. And so I went out and did some research and I found Robert Enright has a forgiveness model that he's been working with for like two decades. And it has four key phases and, 20 some steps in between. And when I went through that documentation that he had out there, I discovered that I went through those phases in my life over the years. Right. And I thought if I put these two together of the journey and the process, and now start looking to how do you actually get past all this trauma and in the PTSD of being a, a foster child, or, or, you know, foster victim, as it were, not foster victim, but a victim of all this. Um, how how do you move beyond that? And how can I help people do that? So what I did is I infused these uh, four phases and these 20 some steps throughout this book, talking about life's journey. In life's phases and there's going to be people that are all kinds of different places in that journey obviously as they pick up the book but there's examples of what happened to you what you can do about it how to get some help where to go for help there's all kinds of links in there uh all kinds of of different ideas on on ways to deal with circumstances uh, of course, I, I, you know, there's I, I did go to counseling for uh, years, multiple sessions over over the years, um, and so I talk about all those things, how how they can help you, uh, some of the, some of the good, some of the bad, some of the challenges, and so the book is there to be kind of a, not just a roadmap or or a, you know a, a cheat sheet, but it's there to be a reference that says gosh, this is happening to me. I wonder what someone else has done in these circumstances. And you may not be, you know, you may not be bold enough to get online and ask somebody because you don't want people to know your problems. But if it's in a book and if it's someplace where you can take a look and you can find out that there's there's links, there's websites, there's organizations, there's therapeutic uh, 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 counseling groups, uh, that specialize in dealing in different kinds of situations. So that's what this new book is all about, is putting all that in a, at your fingertips, where you can, you can go and find some, some sort of peace in your life, with the goal being ultimately getting to the point where you don't necessarily say, oh, gee, I forgive you, let's get back together and try to make a normal life. You can't change other people. You can only help yourself. Right. Right. And so once you learn that, uh, uh, you know, your parents are people, too. They make mistakes. They have problems. You, You go through these phases and you ultimately get to the point where you start to look at them through your adult eyes. Things that happen to you with a kid as a kid, you carry them with you. But then as you get to be an adult, you have kids of your own. I've got grandkids now. You you see things from a different perspective, and you look backwards, and you can be disgusted that, that a child, you, were treated the way the parents, your folks, did, and you can be disgusted. You can be angry at it, but then you can finally get to the point where you can step back and say, I wonder what made them think that was okay, and you begin to start To to investigate, get some of that information and learn some of those things. So that's what this book does. It takes you through all those steps.
0: Well, your message in your ebooks uh can help foster parents and counselors too. Uh Danny, how can people get in touch with you through your various platforms?
1: Okay. So I'm I'm out on uh first of all, I have a website, Dannyvan.com, and there's two ends in both names, Danny van van all this stuff you can reach through there including okay. my facebook uh i'm out there as danny van uh, uh foster care uh former foster i'm sorry danny van former foster you can find me there uh you can find me on youtube uh again danny van foster care uh you can find me out on linkedin um and so uh, all these things I've got various articles uh, that, that you can get to through my website. The ebook by the way is free. It's called oh, good. Um, good. Foster Youth Survivor Guide right um, So okay. what I did was it was one of the first things I came out with uh, about a year year and a half ago was I discovered that there's a lot of people out there a lot of foster youth aging out or recently aged out, or they're homeless, by the way, 40% of your 23,000 foster youth yeah. within two years of aging out, 40% will have a brush with being homeless. Wow. 40%. That's a lot. So I when I heard that and I saw those stats and I see the kids struggling, I put together this ebook, a survivor guide. And it has information about how to figure out what career to pursue. It's got the links to the free assessments. It has links to two one one, which is the emergency uh, telephone number that that kids can call. Uh, anyone can call. They're there as community resources. I have links to homeless uh, uh, shelters. I have links to uh, government programs to help former foster youth, if you've ever been awarded the court, uh, there's programs that will help you all the way up to 26 years old. And they will, they'll pay your way for, for GED, they'll pay your way to college. Uh, and you you can qualify for grants, you got to do some work. But it's nice to know someone's willing to help you.
0: Yeah, it's, there's it's, no- it's great that you're putting all this out there.
1: Yeah, there's another organization called UCU. Y-O-U-S-E-Y-O-U.org. They have free mentors run for life. You cannot age out of their system. Okay. Oh, so if you're if you're thirty something and you're still struggling and you can't figure out what your problem is, get a mentor. Find yeah. somebody who can come alongside you, and it's free. Um, they they offer this up, and they also have life coaches, and they have twenty four hour chat line. At that, ucu.org. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And there's there's just dozens and dozens of organizations that are out there. Uh, childhelp.org, uh, the child abuse uh, hotline. If you come out of the system and you got siblings that are still in, if they are being abused, 1-800, the number four a child. 1-800 for a child. You can report it. They will investigate They'll send someone out to to help and they're not just going to yank people around. They're going to do full research and they, they send counselors and everything. Uh, These are holistic programs. They don't just stick a bandaid on a scar, you know, they're really trying to get involved and help people.
0: Well, I will post all of your contact uh, information in the podcast notes and include a link uh, to your website on my Facebook page and my website. It's a wrap awesome. with rap.com. Uh, Thank you, Danny, for sharing your story with us and being a guiding light for so many people in the foster care community that you touch. You are an inspiration to us all. God bless you for all you do for others and may God watch over you and lead you on a successful path going forward. We want to hear from our listeners. If you have any comments or suggestions, the better the podcast. Contact us on our website. It's a wrap with rap.com. And uh, Facebook, it's a wrap with wrap. You can email us at it's a wrap with wrap at gmail.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.